Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. It is really good to see you, every single one of you, bearers of the image of God. You know, C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. And now I have successfully met my C.S. Lo- Lewis quote, quota, <laughs> if such a thing exists. But it is true. It is true. Christ resides in and in each of you, and, and you bear his image to the world and to each other. I am Tracy Balzer. My title here is Director of Christian Formation, and if you're new to JBU in the last two years, you might not know me, um, but just so you know, a big part of my job is working with my colleagues here and with student leaders like the ones you saw up here just a minute ago to create the chapel program. I love, just in general, I love helping people connect with God in meaningful ways. And my prayer is that this chapel talk might have that result in you as you listen. So would you please pray again with me to that end? Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, the written word, the spoken word, and most especially for the word made flesh, your son, Jesus. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear your word today in life-giving ways and that you'd give us the will to obey whatever it is that you may be asking of us in response to what we hear. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series, our semester-long series of uh, the gospel in the gospel of Mark, and today it's Mark chapter 15, so that tells you that we have really made our way through this semester. This chapter is a long chapter. It covers one day in Christ's earthly life, but it is the last day of his earthly life. Chapter 15 includes the account of Christ's appearance before Pilate, his torture, and Christ's ultimate crucifixion. Everything in this chapter deserves our full attention, and we will certainly give it that during Holy Week next spring as the church worldwide observes Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and ultimately Easter Sunday. But today, on this beautiful day in the middle of November, I want to look at just three verses in this long chapter, beginning in verse 37. So listen carefully, for this is the word of God. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Listen to these three verses one more time. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, 
Surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, each of us has a unique spiritual story, and mine began with a Catholic mother and a Methodist father and ended up in a Reformation. We became Lutherans. My earliest members of church were at the Lutheran Church of the Holy Spirit in Littleton, Colorado. I took my first communion there, I sang in the youth choir, and I learned about the seasons of the church year there. My mother was on the altar guild, which meant that she used her sewing skills to create beautiful vestments for our pastor to wear each Sunday. As I lit all these candles this morning, I found myself remembering my mom, who left us almost 12 years ago. And for the first time, just today, I wondered if her love for beauty in worship, if my love for beauty in worship came from her. Well, the worship services at the Lutheran Church were fairly solemn affairs. I remember my father whispering to me in my ear one Sunday morning as we sang plodding hymns in the stiff red hymnal. Do we have to sing every verse? I don't know for certain what faith meant to my dad. But I do know he was an excellent vocalist with perfect pitch, so those tedious hymns seemed excuse enough for him to stay home every Sunday after that. Meanwhile, my mom dutifully delivered me, my younger brother and sister, each week to church. Mom's Catholic sensibilities were solidly formed in her, so missing church was not an option, even if it wasn't the church of her own confirmation. My dad may have found the worship at the Lutheran Church to be nearly impossible to endure, but for some reason, I, even at such a young age, found it full of mystery and intrigue. As we made our way through the church year, I especially remember the dramatic ending of the annual Good Friday service. Every year, our pastor faced the altar and in a loud cry shouted, it is finished, and then slammed the great altar Bible with a terrific bang. Yes, that would make an impact on a child. Sometimes mom would need to go to the church on Saturday nights to prepare all manner of bits and bobs for the next morning's service. While mom busied herself assembling communion trays and and candles in one of the Sunday school rooms nearby, I vividly remember, again, just as a young girl standing stiffly in the foyer, alone, gazing at the cavernous space in the sanctuary, silent as night and every bit as dark, all except for the single flame flickering on the altar, a lit candle in a tall red glass. Oh, that is called the eternal light my mother later explained, a light that never went out. And to a five-year-old child, it was completely fascinating and mysterious. I believed with all my heart that the candle's glowing presence meant that this was where God was, always. His light never went out. 
but I dared not walk into that dark sanctuary, which to be honest was a little creepy. I was sure I needed to keep my distance. It was nighttime after all and God might be sleeping. Disturbing him didn't seem like a good idea. I simply wasn't old enough to work out that this candle in its red glass burned, uh, that, that, sorry, I, I simply hadn't worked out that this candle burned until it didn't. And then someone, probably someone like my mom on the altar guild, would come and replace it. No magic was involved. Still, that red glowing candle on the altar of the great dark sanctuary did exactly what it was meant to do. It existed sacramentally, an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible truth that God was indeed present all the time. He was the eternal light. That night in the sanctuary is one of a number of times in my life that I've encountered the mysterious holiness of God, even if I couldn't fully comprehend it. And maybe you've had such experiences yourself. Perhaps you've had a mountain, you've had a moment on a mountain peak and you're taking in the wonder and being sort of blown away by it, recognizing that this is where God is. Or maybe you've stood on the edge of the sea and wondered at the power of the current, wave after wave, coming toward you without ceasing. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God's invisible qualities are made known through what is visible. That is why this passage that I read just a bit ago about tearing the temple curtain at the time of Jesus' death has always captivated me. The tearing of the curtain in the temple not only conveys a profound theological truth, it also is a powerful sacramental symbol that is worth our prayerful consideration. I wanna begin by just taking a brief look at the historical significance of this curtain that we are talking about. I think it will help us understand why the tearing of the curtain at the moment of Christ's death is significant. So much so that all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke in addition to Mark, document it. Now if you've taken Old Testament survey, you probably know the importance of the temple in Jewish life and faith. The Jews believed that God actually lived in the temple, his very presence being housed behind this massive heavy curtain that separated the holiest of holy places from the rest of the temple. Also behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant and Aaron's rod that budded and bore almonds as a sign that his tribe, Aaron's tribe, the Levites, would become the priestly tribe of Israel. Now this curtain that blocked the world from God's holy presence was made of thick, ornate tapestry, four inches thick, like that's a hand width wide, and it was 60 feet tall. Clearly, it was meant to last forever. 
Human hands could not tear this curtain. Even when starting from the bottom, never mind starting from the top. So such an event, the tearing of this huge, heavy curtain could only have been evidence of divine activity. It would be particularly shocking to have the barrier between humans and God himself removed. Now this is where you remember what happened in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can Google it if you don't know. According to Jewish law, only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies, and only once a year during the celebration of Passover. There, the high priest would offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. In today's chapter, Mark 15, we read again that Jesus was arrested and killed during Passover week, the very week that the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. The tearing of that great curtain that had separated sinful people from the holiness of God is a remarkable illustration of exactly what happened when Jesus, God's own son, gave his life for us. No longer were sacrifices needed to attain forgiveness. No longer was it permissible for only one person to enter the presence of God. For Jesus has gone before us and cleared the way for all of us. Now I have to ask you honestly, have there been times in your life when it seems that that curtain, that curtain that separates you or that separated us from the holiness of God that has been torn, have there been times when you feel like someone or something is sewing that curtain back together? I'm not talking about whether it's possible to lose your salvation or to be separated from the love of God. Those are different theological discussions for another time. What I'm talking about are the layers and layers of shame and lies that we believe to be true about ourselves and God that can make us feel as far away from God's holiness as the East is from the West. Those layers can build upon each other over time. And before we know it, we find ourselves once again feeling as though we are standing outside of the Holy of Holies, unworthy of God's attention, rather than inside, safe in the embrace of our holy God. So I want to talk about just a few of what I think are some of those harmful layers that keep us from experiencing and trusting that Jesus has done everything that is needed for us to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. I'm guessing that you'll recognize some of these layers of this dividing curtain, either because you struggle with them yourself, or you know someone who's in the thick of this very real spiritual challenge. So the first layer that I found myself thinking about comes from believing the lie that God is always disappointed in you. This is what many of us feel sometimes, and some of us feel all the time. Maybe you've not done well as well in your schoolwork as you know you could have done, or maybe you've been dishonest in some situation, or you reacted poorly in a conflict. Maybe you said or did something hateful. You believe in your head 
because you've taken theology classes here at JBU. You believe in your head that God is merciful and forgiving, but still there is that dull rhythmic cadence in your soul that says you have crossed a line. God might forgive you for what you've done, but he will always be disappointed with you. In our church here in Salem Springs, we pray a prayer of confession every week, asking God to forgive us for the things we have done and also for the things we have left undone. So maybe you've actually done things pretty well. School is good, relationships are good, but it's all the things that you haven't done, that you've left undone, that haunt you. I have to admit, this is a personal struggle of mine, that it doesn't matter that I'm doing my best. There's always more that I could be doing. Like, why am I not serving more at my church? Why am I so selfish with my time? Why do I avoid talking to certain people? Whether our deeds are done or left undone, we are indeed forgiven by God, and yet somehow we can't let go of the feeling that in the end, we are profoundly disappointed to God. All that guilt and shame just keeps layering up to create a massively thick curtain between us and God. Does this ring a bell at all? Do you believe that God actually is disappointed with you? If so, I want you to hear the truth from Psalm 103. Listen carefully. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from him, from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God, your creator, knows your frame. He remembers that you will make poor choices, that you will do things that are contrary to his character, that you will leave many things undone. Yet he is not disappointed in you. He has compassion on you, like a good and loving parent does. So, let Jesus tear that curtain of self-condemnation and insecurity from top to bottom so that you once again can receive the holy compassion of God. Another layer starts when we suddenly recognize that legalistic religion has trapped us or betrayed us. And that recognition is actually good. That's the kind of re religion that Jesus spoke against very harshly. And it's good to recognize that performance in order to gain God's approval is not what life as a Christ follower is meant to be about. Deconstruction is a term we're getting familiar with. And if something is contrary to the gospel, it needs to go. But to deconstruct without any intention of reconstructing is to submit to the perpetual disillusionment that only thickens that curtain, further distancing us, distancing us from the holiness of God. 
I remember attending confirmation class in, at my Lutheran church in my junior high years. I really believed that uh, this confirmation class would be where I would get the answers to everything. One Sunday afternoon, our pastor led the class and I raised my hand to ask what I thought was a pretty fair question. I asked, why don't we take communion every week like some churches do? Because at our church, we only took communion monthly and I just simply wondered why. The pastor looked at me and said, hmm, good question. I'll get back to you. He never did. Now, as an adult, I can give that pastor a lot more grace. I mean, it was really a small thing. I'm sure he got busy and forgot or whatever. But as a kid, that little seed of disenchantment with someone who was my teacher and pastor could have easily grown into full-blown disillusionment with the church if that kind of thing, and far worse, started happening on the regular. Why would I trust someone in the church if they don't take me seriously? Aren't Christians supposed to be kind and not flippant? Of course, my story is nothing like some that we're hearing more and more of right now. How do we sort through our experiences with authorities in the church and other Christians that we believe we should trust without becoming hard-hearted, without deconstructing and then just languishing in our disillusionment, especially in cases when real hurt, maybe even abuse has taken place? My story did not result in anything near to disillusionment, but it is interesting that I still remember it all these years later. How do we keep this curtain of disillusionment from reconstituting? Well, we have to have reliable truth-tellers in our lives who remind us and assure us that God is good and all his ways are good. No matter where you are in your faith, you would benefit from having someone older and wiser to listen to your stories, the good and the bad, to pray with you and for you, just to share life with, to provide a safe space to question with an eye toward the truth. To simply sit down and have a chat over coffee down at ground floor. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Do you happen to know Anna Phillips or Rob Rustoni, Brad Gamble, Scott Wanzer, David Burney, Bethany Smith, Carrie Pollard? Do you know Janet Gardner, Kim Murray, Brad Edwards? I know that there are many more folks here all across campus who are interested in your life and would love to help you as you encounter challenges in your life. But those folks have come to me intentionally saying they are ready to help support you in, the, in your questions and in your spiritual walk. Step out and ask them. I know you think they don't have time, but who doesn't have time for a cup of coffee? And if you can't afford it, stop by our office. Honestly, it's not a big deal. We'll, let you, we'll help you out with that. Deconstruction can only bring true freedom when truth fills the gaps that are left by the process. Come, all you who are thirsty, Isaiah says. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Let Jesus tear the curtain of disillusionment from top to bottom 
so that you can once again enter the holy assurance of God. And finally, a third layer that I'll mention, though there are many more, and you've probably thought of some as I've been talking, is just our own indifference. I mean, for so many of us, God has become so familiar that we sort of waltz into the Holy of Holies with little thought of exactly who it is that we are about to encounter. We've lost a sense of awe before God, taking it for granted that that curtain was split so, so long ago and we don't even recognize the privilege of entering into God's presence so freely. Every year I teach a an honors class on uh, Benedictine monasticism and the best part of the course is when we spend the weekend together with real monks at the monastery. Tessa was with us this weekend. I just returned from that trip and with this, year's, with this year's group and we had this great discussion about how the monks have managed to create this sacred space where you can't help but be in awe of God. And we talked about what could we do here at JBU to make this cathedral more of a sacred space? What if we took a minute to enter the cathedral and remember how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayers have been prayed here? How many thousands of worship songs have been sung? How many times the word of God has been preached? How would that change the way we think about our worship as we gather? When our worship leaders will sometimes invite us to assume whatever posture is most meaningful, do you ever seriously consider that question? Or do you just do what everybody else does? What if we not only stood to hear the scriptures, but we actually took off our shoes because we recognize we're standing on holy ground? I'm sure there are a hundred ways we could courageously ask ourselves how reverence and awe could be present in these worship services in more meaningful ways. We think about it a lot in worship planning. Perhaps you can make a start by simply asking Jesus to tear that curtain of your indifference from top to bottom so that you might reverently enter the holy presence of God. I wanna close with this passage from the book of Hebrews. And I invite you now to stand and I invite you to read it with me together. And if you wanna take off your shoes, feel free. Let's read this passage from Hebrews together. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.